We know that additionally, organizations are facing more pressure than ever to track and report their environmental, social, and governance performance to attract not only investors, but now comply with growing regulations. They need to ensure that their corporate real estate portfolio supports their social sustainability goals. So we have 10 concepts that comprise the well-building standard, mind, community, movement, water, air, light, thermal comfort, nourishment, sound, and materials. We've done the research so that you can make a difference. You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? Hi, and welcome to the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. My name is Ceci Amador de San Jose, and today I'm looking forward to chatting with Tori Shepard. Tori serves as a manager at the International Well-Building Institute, the organization leading the global movement to transform our buildings and communities in ways that help people thrive. She also leads Wells Global Sector Development for co-working and hospitality. Uh, she provides high-touch support to meet the needs of these particular spaces, organizations, and their occupants. Tori, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me today. I'm excited to meet more people that tune into this webcast and share some information about Well. Awesome. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. I I remember when Well uh, kind of like broke into the co-working industry and we had the first kind of like co-working operator that was well certified. It was a huge deal. Uh, I want to start by asking you if you can walk us a little bit through what the Well Building Institute is, what does a Well standard stand for and like what, what does it take to achieve that certification? Yeah, definitely. So for anyone who is not familiar with IWBI and the well building standard, we've been setting the standard for what health leadership looks like for a bit over a decade now. So we're at the center of a global demand surge for health solutions that we're seeing today. Um, and we actually just announced that we've tripled the building area applying well offerings in the past year from 1 billion square feet to more than 3 billion. So that means that well strategies are now supporting health and well-being of an estimated 13.6 million people in 33,000 plus locations in nearly 100 countries. So really um, exciting milestone that we've crossed today, uh, meaning that our footprint is just helping that many people. It's pretty fantastic. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. And um, I think it's great. So I do believe that the shift to healthier buildings had been happening for a little bit, but I'm very, very glad to hear that kind of like the pandemic and people being increasingly more aware about how buildings and the built environment impacts for health is kind of like pushing more organizations and more companies to figure out a way to actually provide healthy environments for for people. Yeah, definitely. I think COVID has changed that conversation from a nice to have to definitely a must have. Yes, and I think that because people, I mean, um, government lockdowns and uh, social distancing and all of that, I think it was the perfect timing also for uh, companies or landlords or property developers to undergo all the different, um, I'm assuming, changes and renovations that must take place in order to get well certified as no one was actually going into the office, at least not in huge numbers. Yeah, exactly. So speaking about kind of like the changes and the shift to healthier environments, um, what are some of the, so I think there's kind of like two different uh, types of like 
organization. So there's like kind of like new construction that is just mm -hmm. like from the get go incorporating kind of like healthier alternatives into the entire construction design and layout process. But then what about older buildings? Can you walk us a little bit through the components that make a well um, environment? And what are some strategies that leaders, our real estate developers, um, landlords or tenants can take to actually uh, get that certification, whether they're starting from scratch or they're already in a built, an older building or space? Yeah, definitely. And we do say that we have one well for all types of buildings, whether they're new construction or existing. Um, I recently supported a building 500 Collins in Melbourne that was 70 years old and just achieved well platinum certification. So it definitely can be done for existing spaces as well. Um, and of course, across different sectors. And in terms of how it works, well applies the science of how physical and social environments impact human health, well-being and performance. So the standard is comprised of policy operations and design strategies that are focused on how you can put health at the center of decision-making for your business. So we have 10 concepts that comprise the well building standard, mind, community, movement, water, air, light, thermal comfort, nourishment, sound, and materials. We outline building and organization level interventions that make the air cleaner to breathe or water healthier to drink, lighting to support circadian rhythms, healthy food accessible, policies to support mental health, DEI initiatives, and more. We like to say that we've done the research so that you can make a difference. I, I love that. And I really like how the, the, the Institute, so it's not only about air and movement, you know, the physical elements, but a huge part of it has been mental health, which so yes, COVID has brought to the limelight the importance of air quality in buildings. Mm. But as more people work from home and they're facing a lot of extra stress just from uh, heavier workload, um, financial stress and working with others and at home, not being able to keep those blurred lines, I feel like mental health has become like this huge priority for organizations. Um, so I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the mental health component of, of well. Um, how can buildings, how can spaces um, contribute to the mental health of the end user? Mental health is definitely one of the key focuses of workplace design today um, and one of our key initiatives at the well building, uh, the International Well Building Institute. Even before the pandemic, about 20 to 25% of adults experienced a common mental health condition, such as anxiety, depression, or substance abuse in a given year. Research out of the Queensland Center for Mental Health Research estimates the prevalence of major depressive disorder rose 28% globally, and anxiety disorders rose 26% globally. This corresponds to 53 million people with major depressive disorder and 76 million people with anxiety disorders due to the COVID-19 pandemic alone. So clearly there's a huge need for workplaces to not only support mental health issues when they occur, but also to simply foster a holistic state of well-being for their employees to build those skills, to build resilience in light of immense challenges and stressors of today. Um, of course, uh, this is by no means an easy solve. It's critical for organizations to take a holistic approach, looking at a combination of policies, design, and culture shifts in order to drive that change in a really holistic and lasting manner. 
so design wise at least um, mm. in that aspect what are some elements of design that people might not think about when they think about mental health and the built environment supporting mental health yeah there are many ways that the well building standard promotes facilitating mental health through design and policies um, things that come to mind just really quickly are, of course, biophilia, as in access to nature, proper acoustics, thermal comfort, access to a diversity of spaces that meet the needs of diverse workplaces in terms of access, hyper and hyposensitivity, um, and other realms. But one design feature that I think really stands out to me at the moment in the well building standard is mine feature MO7 restorative spaces which requires a well project to support access to at least one space that promotes restoration and relief from mental fatigue or stress. Um, and I can actually give you two just quick impactful examples of that feature yeah. in practice. We'd love that. Yeah. Great. Um, so the first, um, which I love this example, is from Atoki Corporation in Japan. They installed what they called a mind fitness room which is a meditation room for their employees to take meditation breaks throughout the day. Um, and they've actually attributed this room to a great rise in productivity and workplace culture. And this was actually ahead of the curve by offering this back in 2019. Um, and I do think there'll be a significant shift where employers will make more of an effort to provide those types of amenities, either through physical spaces or access to apps or services. And the other example that I also love um, is from First Centier Investors, um, which is an office in Sydney, Australia. Their restorative space uh, was a quiet room, which had dimmable lights, had plants, um, optional music, um, and it even can be reserved on an online booking system. They installed signage that encourages staff to use the room for prayer, as well as other non-work related purposes. And when I visited this space um, during their well certification journey, the facilities and office manager actually stopped me to tell her how moved some of their employees were by this offering. Um, one man even stopped her in the hallway to tell her how appreciative he was that the organization would care so much for him to provide a prayer room um, because he was Muslim and used the room multiple times a day for prayer. So. Um, uh that's incredible. Um, when you're talking about these kind of like restorative spaces, um, do they all have to fit kind of like um, the same criteria, you know, dimmable lights, um, kind of like no technology, or is that really more up to the organization? Yeah, there is some flexibility within it. Um, I would say that is intentional in order to meet the needs of the occupants in your space. So of course, um, you can do some sort of analysis and studies to see, are there people with certain religious needs that need mm -hmm. the space? Are there mothers that might need a lactation room or just the general employee that might need a quick sleep or break depending on the hours that they're working? Um, so um, there are some criteria in terms of access to outlets. Of course, we know that um, nursing mothers need that type of um, amenity in order to, to um, plug in their appliances. But also one of the requirements is dimmable lights um, and quiet spaces. So um, you can always combine uses, but it cannot be a space that has any type of work function to it. It must be a restorative space. The reason I ask is because I think this was 2018 or 2017 that I read um, that this organization had implemented. So it was a break room, but it was 
literally a break room so people could go there you know to like relieve stress or anger and they could like they had like a bunch of stuff in there that people could like smash or break so oh my um, goodness <laughs> we don't know that is a well intervention but <laughs> i could uh, suggest yeah, so, it yeah so so yeah that's why i asked if it kind of had to be like you know this um quieter room that what, what people would normally think of when they think they need a break and to kind of like tune everything out of their systems and yeah. Tori, um, and, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, just one thing to add there. I think one of the biggest criteria as well is just doing an analysis to understand demand in your space. So it's really great to have a restorative room, but if there's 10 people that need it and only one person can access it at a time, um, that's an issue. So that is one of the other criteria that we implement in terms of reviewing plans for spaces and having that restorative need met. Awesome. And then is there kind of like an... I don't want to say like square footage requirement, but how how does it work then for kind of like larger employers or, uh, for example, fl flexible workspaces and co-working spaces where there's kind of like a, a higher number of people that are working there um, on a day to day basis? Yeah, so we have a minimum square footage requirement okay. per employee up to a specific amount. Um, and then after that threshold for very large organizations, we would trust that it was in the organization's best interest to kind of um, undergo a quality study to then propose to us what they think would be the recommended amount. You know, we don't want to have a massive organization with too many restorative rooms. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't necessarily be a terrible issue, but once it does cross that threshold, we can work with organizations to help find that sweet spot. Amazing. Um, and then you lead um, Wells Global Sector for Co-working and Hospitality. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. How is the process, um, or at least in your experience, is the process to getting the certification different for you know a company headquarters versus a co-working space uh, mm -hmm. whose end user? I mean, it varies a whole lot more um, than with like a regular headquarters from a company. Yeah, so I would say yes and no. Um, the good thing about Well is that uh, we've worked with so many diverse sectors and organizations around the world to make a program that truly is flexible and customizable to meet the needs of every project. So there are over 120 interventions in the Well Building Standard. There are some that are mandatory and some that are optional and are associated with points. The more points that you can accrue, of course, you can reach Well Bronze, Silver, Gold, or Platinum is the highest level. Um, but within that, there are different scopes and applicability that you can read directly in the feature language. So if you were a co-working operator and you were a tenant within a commercial building, of course, there are things that might be outside of your scope. Um, one of the common issues with co-working is understanding how much control that co-working operator has over the HVAC system. Um, so we can work with you to say, OK, let's see what's in your remit. What can we control and what can we actually reach out to the landlord to see if there is some kind of wiggle room there to work collectively with the landowner? Um, of course, if there's, on the other hand, a landowner or building owner that is pursuing well certification for the core space, their scope would be different, of course, than a commercial or corporate tenant. So we work with our clients directly and you can see in the feature language that that distinction would be clearly mapped out. Um, and then also you can be connected with our well coaching team to say, these are our goals for well certification. Can you point us to the features that will actually help us achieve those goals? 
That, that, that's amazing. And I think it's um, very important for co-working and flexible workspace operators right now to incorporate all of these kind of like healthier elements into their spaces, especially as, you know, the return to the office and people mm -hmm. in companies saying you can work from home or you can work from the company headquarters or working near home. Uh, co-working operators will need to lure workers back into the office and not just any office, but that particular co-working location. And they're going to, they're going to have to compete with traditional headquarters and organizations that have more resources to kind of like personalize maybe some aspects of the workplace. So in, in your experience with the whole movement and the shift towards healthier built environments, um, what are some ways that co-working space operators, some strategies that they can implement mm -hmm. to create uh, a people-first uh, workplace location? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, for the you know today's environment, one of the biggest things is transparency. Um, you know, both companies and employees directly are looking for what spaces are doing to ensure their safety. So for instance, if you can provide clear communication to your members or prospective members to say what the air filtration is being used is in the space, um, if there's proper ventilation in place, if there's HEPA or MERV filters in place, um, but also um, are other members required to show vaccine status or wear masks? How many people are allowed in the space at one time? People just want access to this information so that they can make the most informed decision. Um, of course, going a step further would be earning actually a well certification that's third party verified to show that um, you, know, you have actually not only talking the talk, but you're actually walking the walk. Um, in addition to that, of course, I think all of us have experienced the great joys of working from home, but also the challenges. So um, it wouldn't be lost, I'm sure, on the audience for this podcast to say that people want to go back to some sort of office environment. Um, people want you know, that additional structure to their work days to be able to um, you know, have that work home separation. Um, also to have access to printers and office supplies, conference rooms. Um, and also one of the biggest things that I think is a huge disparity in terms of the remote working setup is proper ergonomic workstations. Yes. So I know that a lot of my friends, um, whether they were in New York City, Melbourne, Los Angeles, all over the world, um, you know, some had great sit-stand desks, others were working on a couch, others on a kitchen table. So I think really communicating all of the healthy interventions in a space, whether it relates directly to COVID or kind of there's more holistic elements like ergonomics and circadian lighting and biophilia um, is something that will go, you know, pay dividends in attracting people to your co-working space. That's, that's great. And what you said about ergonomics, I, I feel the pain. <laughs> I, I used to have this like amazing setup and then we had to repurpose that room. This was prior to the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, I was back to working either from my bed or the living room couch or just like very stiff dining room chairs until eventually I just decided to set up like a tiny-ish workstation in tiny corner of one of the rooms in the house. But I did get my ergonomic chair and that's helped a whole lot. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's little things like that, that, I mean, some people may have known this before the pandemic and the importance of, love, of all of it, 
but I feel that now people are so much more aware of all the tiny little things that make or break a workplace experience. I think ergonomics is a great one. I feel like having the right environment, I don't know, but I think mm. it's harder for people to find the motivation to work when they're uh, working from home. I know that if there's like chaos, visually, visual chaos, like um, I can see uh, clothes or I can see kind of like dishes stacked or a lot of glass that that's going to put me off and my mind's going to be like, I need to, you know, I want to fix that instead of um, focusing on the task at hand. So I, I think all of these elements, like you said, people are definitely much more aware of the pains of working from home, but it's still so comfortable and so convenient though that mm -hmm. while some people do want to go back, I think it'll be harder than a lot of us anticipate to actually get them to leave um, the door. Yeah, I agree. And we actually kind of did a survey in our own workplace. Our headquarters is in New York City. And there were a few people that actually requested to go into the office during the pandemic because they said, you know, I have a full house. I need some quiet. Um, so there's always going to be people that do want to have that work environment. But I completely agree with you. There's this other subset of people that say, you know, I might want to go in one to two days a week. I need to have some flexibility or I've actually moved to a different location and I'm not near the headquarters. What can you, you know, help me? Can you connect me to a co-working operator? So I think there's definitely a lot of perks that can draw people in. Um, I know myself, even just getting out for a barista made coffee is a treat. I would love to be able to have a co-working location that had a full cafe. Um, so things like that with, with healthy snacks and healthy amenities, I think will help differentiate one lo co-working location to another. And, and you brought us actually into my next uh, question, which is, and you mentioned it. So a lot of people moved and they're not as close to the company headquarters. And then there's also people that maybe didn't move, but they're not willing to mm. go through like a one hour commute to go back into the office. They may be willing to commute for 15 to 20 minutes, but not beyond that. What are some things um, that co-working space operators can do to become an attractive and preferred solutions for employers. So what can co-working spaces do when if they're they want to attract kind of like enterprise clients and have the company sponsor memberships for their employees? What are some things that companies are looking at? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm incredibly interested in this kind of new networked office of the um, you know headquarters office, which is potentially in a downtown or CBD area the remote working location from home, um, and then also this work near home future location, um, which I know All Work has published many articles about this topic already, so I won't, won't go into that. Um, but in terms of attracting kind of the employers themselves, um, we already at the Well uh, International Well Building Institute, we work with about 100 of the Fortune 500, um, along with thousands of other organizations. So these companies um, clearly see the value of well and will be looking for ways to provide well initiatives to remote workers and satellite locations. We know that additionally, organizations are facing more pressure than ever to track and report their environmental, social and governance performance to attract not only investors, but now comply with growing regulations. Thus, um, they need to ensure that their corporate real estate portfolio supports their social sustainability goals. Well, of course, can play a key role in that. Uh, but my key point here is that co-working spaces have a huge opportunity to fill this need 
to demonstrate how they can support member health, culture, community, environmental initiatives, et cetera, um, because any element of an organization will expand to their full corporate portfolio, including where they send their employees to. I, I, I agree. I think that companies are increasingly waking up to this to the well-being, to the importance of well-being, not just for, for people, but for the organization at large. I mean, companies are made after all by people, made up of people. And if they're not doing well, then it's not that likely that the company will do as well as it could be um, if they had kind of like this like focus of helping people kind of like bring their better selves to work. Off the top of your head, um, back to mental health and, and well-being. What are kind of like the top five strategies or the top easiest strategies that co-working space operators and even companies at large can implement to support mental health at work beyond the restorative rooms that we already talked about today? Yeah, I mean, I think one big thing is having some sort of safety plan. Um, I think everyone is pretty anxious about the current situation and having you know, info or transparency into the types of initiatives that are in place is something that can really have a big impact on mental health. Um, in addition to that, I would say um, organizations more broadly having access to um, mental health resources is incredibly important and communicating to their employees how they can access those. So for instance, having quarterly newsletters or emails sent around to say, you have access to this EAP, you can reach out to a therapist on this line, it's anonymous, um, really encouraging your employees to use those mental health resources to reduce any stigma that could be associated with them. Um, additionally, I think access to kind of company culture is something that people are really missing. People feel incredibly isolated working from home. I know for me myself, I was working uh, remotely before COVID even started. So we were looking for a co-working space, um, me and my colleagues based in Melbourne for a while, just to have access to networking events, to have potentially a communal yoga class once a week with others at the co-working location or um, you know, drinks at five on a Friday evening. So access to that kind of community building or water cooler chat um, is something that a lot of people are missing and looking for. I, and I think that co-working space operators are uniquely positioned to, to kind of like cater to those individuals and professionals that are searching for that community and um, yeah, aspect of, of work. I know, I mean, they, they're known already for hosting events, uh, workshops, and, you know, part of the pride of, of co-working spaces is that they help combat the loneliness, isolation uh, epidemic, uh, especially for remote workers or freelancers or entrepreneurs. And that's another thing. There's like a huge market right now for that. There's so many people that started a side gig uh, or people that, you know, they either work um, they live alone, and so they've been working from home for a really, really long time. I have a friend that recently, he said, like, I, so this conversation we had on Saturday, and he says, I just came to the realization that I haven't interacted with a human being in person since Tuesday. And I'm like, that can't be good for you. <laughs> like, no. at least go to the grocery store, go get a coffee, something, say hi to someone. But that, I feel like when people are, spend so much time alone, they get used to it on the one side, but it becomes harder for them to then kind of like relate and connect with others. And that's such a key part of being human. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And it actually brings me back to the previous point as well about restorative spaces, because I think people are really craving that um, kind of community building and access to social interaction. But at the same time, we're all going to be thrown kind of into the deep end when we go to a, a networking event or a conference in person for the first time. And we might need to have these small moments away in quiet space to just kind of take a deep breath and rejuvenate after kind of having that overstimulation after so much time inside. I, I agree. I think that, I mean, with everything that COVID and uh, I feel like everything, the return to the office is still very much in the air. No one really knows what it's going to look and feel like. And I agree, we're craving that, that, that interaction but I don't know if it'll overwhelm us a whole lot more after spending almost two years away from it. So it'll definitely be interesting to see how, how it plays out. Yeah, I imagine it'll be a, a long, ever-changing transition over the next couple of years. I agree. Uh, Tori, we're almost running out of time here. Is there anything else you want to add? If people want to learn more about the Well Building Institute, how to get a certification or, or even where to start, where can they find more information? Yeah, I would definitely navigate to wellcertified.com. Um, and while you're there, I would highly recommend you toggle over to the resource tab. It's up in the, the top bar of the screen on the right. Um, and take a look at our IWBI special report, Prevention and Preparedness, Resilience and Recovery. Um, we launched that only a couple of months ago, but it was an initiative that we everything everyone at the organization worked on for over a year in addition to many, many of the 600 members on our IWBI task force on COVID-19 and other respiratory infections. Um, that report itself has four parts. It includes a deep dive into the research behind each section, voices from various professionals, perspectives from 12 different sectors, and observations from six key regions around the world. So if uh, this conversation was of interest to you, um, I really encourage you to take a look at that report and hear from experts who are much more informed on some of these other topics than I am. So please do spend some time on that resource. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in uh, to the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Remember that new episodes are released every Thursday. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?